Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Floor 9. My name is Ryan Miller, and today we're going to be taking you through the peaks and troughs of Apple's peak performance event. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Adam Simon. Adam, are you more valley high or river low after yesterday's event? I feel like I'm riding pretty high. You know, that spring event for Apple, sometimes it's pretty mundane. I think yesterday turned into more excitement than a lot of people were bargaining for. Yeah, I definitely agree. There were some interesting announcements across the spectrum of uh, accessibility and price points. But before we dive into the hardware side of things, I think it would be a poignant place to start with the content which Tim Cook actually kicked off the event with, with some of his shilling or for your consideration speech for some of Apple TV Plus's content, such as Mahersha Ali's performance, Denzel Washington's performance in Tragedy Macbeth, as well as the Oscar nomination for Best Picture with Coda. Um, do you see them actually being a main competitor to some of the other video streaming services now with some of these award nominations, or is that kind of agnostic of the performance of the platform? That's an interesting question of what's driving people to Apple TV Plus. I think that it's definitely important at this stage to get those nominations and awards. It's definitely important on the creator side of things, right? Apple wants mm. filmmakers and showrunners and movie stars and TV stars to know that they're going to fund the real for your consideration campaigns and that, that Apple TV Plus is a place you can come to do award-winning work. That's super important for every sort of emerging streaming platform. I think that for viewership, I think maybe it nudges people over from the next time they upgrade their, their iPhone into activating that TV Plus trial or coming back if they had already burned through their free trial, maybe in the early days when there wasn't as much content, maybe there's newer stuff that they're interested in. At the $5 a month price point, it's still so accessible that it's like, yeah, if there's a show or a movie that you want to see, you know, I don't know, come back for a month. It seems like they're still in the building phases there. I don't know how much awards are going to help uh, versus just, hey, that's it's a free thing you get when you buy a new phone. <laughs> I think that they're going to need to offer a free trial 2.0 to so a lot of subscribers. I think a lot of people burned that on Ted Lasso, but now that the content library is slightly more robust than it once was, I think they have an opportunity to stay in the environment a little bit longer with access to new titles and new types of content as well. They offered that really extended year long, and it was extended even beyond a year because of, of COVID trial to folks right out of the gate. I wouldn't be surprised if we see at some point that you get, let's say, a three-month trial when you buy a new iPhone. If they don't feel like their numbers are keeping up with their expectations, there's a lot of levers they can pull to catch up there. One such lever that I think that they're looking into would be an announcement that I think was out of left field, if you will, for an Apple event. Oh! <laughs> um, <laughs> they actually managed to secure broadcast rights to Friday Night Baseball. I believe it was 50 games over the course of the season, and they're going to be broadcasting those across eight countries. I think it's really interesting to see Apple enter the sports broadcasting discussion, especially as we see it become more fragmented with more and more players getting access to different types of sports, different uh, versions of of the events and so on. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a test. I think we should be clear about that. Mm -hmm. It's a relatively small number of games. It's a way for them to see, is, is this going to attract more people to Apple TV Plus? And it's not an additional fee. Everybody had been expecting them to add a second tier when they secured some sports rights. But again, this is so small. They're just eating the cost of it and seeing if they can use that as a customer acquisition tool. It also gives them a way to test some of their live infrastructure because they do 
as, as we're talking about. They do these events, but these events are all pre-recorded at this point. So there is a little bit of a different technology pipeline for being out on the field and obviously having your announcers and commentators chime in as well. This is probably testing on the audience side, but also on the tech side to make sure everything's in place. And then I would expect maybe this time next year, we see some larger investments coming due and maybe a higher tier or maybe not. Maybe they keep it all in a low price and are just focused on growing subscribers into that one tier. Apple has a very unique and particular aesthetic, and we've seen a reimagination of the broadcast experience with such things like the Nickelodeon NFL broadcast. Mm. Do you think they're going to tap into any of their creative capabilities to kind of showcase and <laughs> highlight the sport in a new way to a younger audience even? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I would like the answer to be yes, because a thing I think about a lot is we watch all of our video content on computing devices now, and there's a lot more you can do with those devices, given that it's all just video coming into software. I know Apple has shown off fancier things you can do in some of their tech demos for the Apple TV. My guess is that this first version, we won't see that, that it'll be pretty standard. But I would hope that if they do, and as we suspect they probably will, continue to invest in sports, that they actually look to redesign that interface to be more modern and more effective, or even just, you know, give the user a little more control over which camera angles they're looking at and things like that. Yeah, I mean, baseball is as American as apple pie, but as we've seen, the audience isn't really there anymore. So if we're going to keep it one of our hallmarks of uh, our tradition, I think it's going to need some revamping. And I think Apple's got a pretty good track record of making things cool. So that was the content side of things. We know that Apple obviously is more focused on the development of its hardware and software. And I think they did a pretty good job of demonstrating all of what's available across the spectrum of devices in terms of price point and accessibility. Let's start at the lower end of that spectrum with the iPhone SE. What was the most interesting takeaway that you took away from the announcement? It got revved, it got updated to 5G, and with that, it got a nice uh, price bump by $30 of a 5G tax. I mean, seriously, I think this is them pushing down market for 5G, and also the iPhone SE is an important sort of placeholder product for Apple that is their most inexpensive iPhone that they sell. Super important for markets outside the US, but also in the US as well. And the fact that it's 5G and it's upgraded to the A15 processor just means that product is relatively future-proof and it's probably going to sit there unchanged at that price point for two or three years. What I like about the price point, I think it's a great entry point for Android users who are looking to make the switch over to Apple products. I think it's just a great way to get them into the ecosystem and get them involved. And then, you know, Apple Watch from there, and then it's a MacBook, and they've got you locked in for life. So moving on from the iPhone SE, I want to move into the next tier up, which would be the mid-tier. I think we saw some revamps with the iPad Air, most notably being the introduction of the M1 chip. I think what's really interesting about that is that where you've seen this pivot of the iPad away from just like an email accessibility device and video streaming counterpart to being competitive rather with webbooks. I think ultimately that is what they're pushing for. But do you think that that's ultimately going to take the place of some of these lower powered PCs and computers that people are using? As we've said for years, the thing that's holding the iPad back at this point is the software. It did get better last year, but it is still not entirely, for most people, a replacement for a laptop. It's still a sort of a supplementary device. I think that the iPad Air is 
it being in that mid-tier is super well positioned should, so that if they eventually do get the software over the hump and into being uh, something that is more productive for, for more people, it's a great product because it has many of the features of the iPad Pro, but it starts at almost 50% of the cost. So I think that's sort of mainstream, middle-of-the-road iPad. Again, it's waiting on software updates, but uh, based on some of the other announcements that we'll talk about in a second, I do kind of wonder if maybe the iPadOS software updates that will get announced in June might finally push it over into into new territory. But we've been saying about that, that about the iPad for years, so no uh, no promises at all. One of the capabilities that was touted across both the iPhone SE and the new iPad Air was that you're going to be able to use SharePlay from anywhere now and not just on Wi-Fi tapping into the 5G network. Do you read anything more into that, Adam, or is this just like hey, we've got a new 5G use case over here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, Apple feeling compelled to justify 5G. Um, look, I think the reality is they're including it on in all these devices because, you know, as we said, they want like the iPhone SE, they only update every couple of years. They obviously want to update it with 5G and then not touch it for a while. Makes it more future-proof for, for consumers. But they're really doing it because the carriers are pushing them to do it, right? That like a lot of 5G usage is being just the next time you buy a phone, it comes with 5G. We don't have really good in-market use cases for 5G. So uh, I, I'm sure this is Apple just trying to <laughs> justify what is decisions that are being made for logical reasons, but there aren't necessarily consumer benefits as selling points for 5G. So they're trying to come up with some. <laughs> Well, I think they're just doing a good job of generally meeting table stakes across the board. We're seeing chip upgrades across pretty much every single device, rather. We're seeing that 5G capability is available across pretty much all devices now as well. So yep. what I think they've done a good job from is setting up a bunch of different tiers that people can get integrated in the Apple ecosystem with, whether it's at the price point of the SE at 429 and the iPad Air, or to some of these more expensive devices, such as the Mac Studio. It's been a long time since they have released a device like this, the Mac Studio. They actually sunset the 27-inch iMac yesterday and now have introduced this new designed item. Um, Adam, what are your main takeaways from this new Mac Studio device? It is a high-end device designed for seemingly, you know, the way they're talking about it for creators, right? For creative professionals, people who are working in music and video and writing software. It's a high power device, but it's still, it's about the size of a Mac mini, but maybe two or three times as tall. And it has no display built in. It's modular like the Mac mini. They also announced a studio display to go along with it, which is a long time in coming, a sort of consumer priced display from Apple, which they hadn't made in a while. It seems like a really awesome combo and something that also is uh, coincidentally more expensive than the 27-inch iMac that it, it is replacing and extending. <laughs> Apple is definitely taking the transition to Apple Silicon devices across the Mac line as an opportunity to reset pricing expectations and reset some of those tiers they've established and rethink them. Notably, they have said that this is not replacing the Mac Pro. The Mac Pro, which is historically at the very top of Apple's line, we've not seen the new one with the new Apple Silicon. It is obviously going to be a beast, but I think this also frees up the Mac Pro a little bit to just be crazy expensive and crazy high power, right? The Mac Studio starts at $2,000, but quickly goes up to $4,000 and maxed out can go up to $8,000. So if you think mm -hmm. about that price range, 
you can imagine that the Mac Pro, which currently starts at $6,000, might actually start at more like eight, <laughs> you know, when, when we see the, the updated version of that. Let's talk about what's ultimately pushing these price points to these astronomical levels. I think something that they touted throughout the event was that Apple Silicon and ultimately the M1 Max and the M1 Ultra Max chips. What does that mean for us in terms of computing power, or does it even mean anything to the general consumer at this point? Apple's chips, as they have been in the iPhone, but even more so in the Mac, they're by far the fastest in the industry. They are heads and shoulders above um, Intel and AMD in terms of, uh, of making computer processors. And they are now, with the new M1 Ultra that was just announced for the Mac Studio, they're now competing um, also at the very high end of like NVIDIA's uh, graphics cards, right? The GPU parts of the M1 Ultra are both faster and also more power efficient than mm. the NVIDIA's 3090 series, which is sort of their, their flagship series of graphics cards. Obviously, these things change all the time. I'm sure NVIDIA will come up with something later this year that's faster. I guess they're so much faster than Intel and AMD that they're not going to catch up very quickly. On the graphics side, they're not quite that far ahead of NVIDIA that I think there might be a little back and forth there, at least in the short term. There's an interesting consumer takeaway and just like, are we going to see more consumer adoption of Macs because of just how crazy fast they are? And also like the studio is a desktop computer. It doesn't have a battery, but like the laptops, for example, all have crazy battery life as well, right? Like there's definitely some work on the Windows side of things of of folks needing to catch up to a lot of those features. The larger takeaway and the thing that I'm thinking about a lot is like with Apple so far ahead in speed and processing power and in, in every dimension right now, um, it really, I think, has me excited for what we're going to see when they do start bringing this technology to new categories. It's all awesome to say I've got a thousand track <laughs> logic project that I'm going to edit or something. Uh, I don't have that problem, but somebody does. But I think, you know, we know that things like the headset that is is coming eventually, uh, probably later this year, uh, the AR VR headset and the car, that those things will need crazy fast processing. And I think what we're just seeing here is look at what's actually available. I don't think we're going to see an M1 Ultra in a headset because it, it is designed for a desktop computer. But seeing any M1 class processor in a headset might be enough to differentiate it from what we see from like the Meta Quest, for example. And as they continue to push the standard closer to, you know, three nanometer, two nanometer, maybe eventually we get this computing power into those headsets, into our watches, exactly. whatever it might be. But to your point, I think we are still a bit away from that. I also think that what they're rivaling NVIDIA in the graphics space, I don't think anytime soon they're gonna usurp them from a gaming perspective. Mm. I think that this is very much based in more professional production realm as opposed to what we see the use case of some of the more hardcore gamers out there. I mean, that's a good call out. I think it's worth mentioning that at this point, Today, the problem for Apple in gaming is not a performance problem. And it hasn't been for a little while, but it's entirely an, an ecosystem mm -hmm. and relationship problem where they don't have the relationships with the AAA game producers. Uh, they don't have the, um, the tool chain uh, that really supports 
that on their platforms. They could build all of that. It's there if they want it. Apple's the wealthiest company in the world. Uh, they could clearly do it. It's historically been something that they've been bad at. And I don't think that they're changing their strategy. I, my guess is that they are looking at this space and that their hope is that at some point it's a, if we build it, they will come kind of situation where they might start winning over game developers over time if they maintain this sort of peak level of performance. Totally agree. I think that they have a lot of other ducks in their row right now and that gaming is in their peripherals uh, at yeah. the moment. But I think uh, the main takeaway from yesterday or the TLDR, if you will, is that Apple Silicon is the industry standard. There was a lot of up to the right charts and a lot of bar graphs that had Apple on top of their competitors. And I think that they <laughs> did demonstrate from a tech perspective that these chips are moving a lot of their products in the right direction. We mentioned the Apple headset that's coming. Apple said nothing about that at this event. I think the earliest we're going to know anything would be at uh, their developer conference in June. Even that might be a little shaky. Um, notably, Apple has not mentioned the word metaverse. And from what I hear, will not mention the word metaverse when they do announce their products. Plenty of other brands and technology companies are playing in the space. It seems like every day there's new announcements about what X brand is doing in the metaverse. So maybe let's just jump through a few of those and we can we can talk about them all together. Yeah, I think one interesting one to call out is that American Eagle is actually making their Roblox debut to promote a members always collection that draws on vintage and prep styles and emphasizes inclusivity. Adam, what are your thoughts on Roblox as a platform or a protoverse environment? Does it stand up against to some of its competitive set? I really like Roblox as a place for brands to activate if they're looking for these places in the metaverse that they can activate today. They have such a large audience and so many people are already there that I just think you're going to get a lot more organic traffic and a lot more organic attention. Even for folks who aren't there every day, they might have probably checked something out in Roblox before, already have an account, already kind of know how to navigate in the space. I think we don't often talk about is the like learning curve around how to use all of these games that if you're not a gamer can be a little intimidating for folks. It makes a lot more sense to go where people are and to go with one of the bigger, more familiar platforms. I think that's kind of in contrast to what we're seeing. Uh, we know Gucci, for example, did an activation in Roblox with Gucci Garden that got about a million people visiting it while it was live. They're now actually pivoting and going with into a partnership with The Sandbox, which is a smaller platform. The Sandbox is one of two major minor platforms uh, that are building these uh, sort of uh, metaverse platforms on top of crypto and Web3 technologies. So The Sandbox and Decentraland, they both rely on real ownership of items and also property, in quotes, real estate, in quotes, virtual real estate. Both of those platforms have under a million active users. And I just don't see what you're getting other than that real world ownership, which is frankly, you know, not necessarily that important uh, for most brands at this stage in the metaverse. You might get that, but you're missing out on the size of an audience you could get at something like Roblox. So just the fact that Gucci had a million people engaged with their Roblox content, and now they're going to a platform that only has a total of about a million people, I think is... Uh, uh, in, an interesting strategy uh, there. My guess is they're sort of playing the field just to sort of see how different platforms work. I would assume they're going to get much less engagement with their sandbox activation. 
What I think an interesting takeaway is from a brand perspective is that the valuation on some of these metaverse activations can be so varied, it's really important to kind of assess what's available throughout the landscape. For example, they're going to be doing the sandbox activation Gucci, and we know that they have less than a million users on that platform. The activation between American Eagle and Roblox was actually done through a server called Livetopia. Mm -hmm. That's just one of the most popular games on the Roblox platform. It's not even access to the entire user base they have there. So when we're considering the opportunity that exists across those proto and metaverse environments, I think it's important to realize the scale of the audience that exists beyond just some of the capabilities in these realms. 100%. Like I said, it's not that there's no value in doing something on smaller platforms, but it just needs to be considered as part of the overall strategy. The other thing is just that I, I do feel like some brands are getting distracted by the mirage of owning property in the in the metaverse, which some platforms who shall be un, re, remain unnamed are sort of trying to treat this like it's a domain name gold rush from the 90s. And that's definitely not what's happening here. Pretty much none of these metaverse platforms are necessarily likely to be around in five or 10 years. So I do not think this is a land grab that brands need to rush into and be concerned about. As Stephen Levy, who is a noted tech historian, said recently when asked about the metaverse, nobody needs a metaverse strategy next month. It's not a make or break moment for any brand at this point. Uh, and it's a great thing to talk about, but there's a lot of progressive steps to get you towards a metaverse strategy. And if you're even asking about it, we probably need to start from stage one and talk about gaming and building online community and all of the other bits and pieces that eventually add up to a metaverse strategy. <laughs> yeah, and you talked about these companies that may or may not be here in five or 10 years. One that probably will, for better or for worse, <laughs> is Meta. And uh, they recently inked a partnership with Rolling Stone uh, for an initiative to host creator experiences at festivals and custom events throughout 2022. The brands will join forces to host creator houses at some of the biggest music and cultural festivals, beginning with an installation at South by Southwest. What could this possibly mean for an on-site activation? Are you going to be having your physical presence linked to your digital presence in some alternate universe? Or where do you think they're going with the type of uh, partnership? Yeah, like I mean, it's unclear to me exactly what they expect to get out of this. To me, this doesn't necessarily indicate that it's a metaverse-related activation. Mm -hmm. It could just be that, look, every social platform is courting creators, right? Creators are becoming a huge cultural force and a huge economic force. And Meta slash Facebook wants to be part of that. They're not specifically, a, uh, you know, outside of Instagram, they're not necessarily a great platform for creators. You know, this might just be about making sure their Instagram influencers feel loved when they go to these events, right? It's also a place that they could experiment with some new technology and some metaverse stuff. But I don't know that that necessarily is even part of the strategy. As we know from, from what Zuckerberg has said, the metaverse stuff is is their long-term strategy, but the short-term strategy is all about uh, fending off TikTok, basically. I would expect a lot of video production stuff to be housed at the in, in these early uh, creator experiences. That's a really interesting point that you raise about the music industry and how it rivals TikTok. I think a lot of emergent artists are actually turning to TikTok as a platform to get a start in their music industry and kind of foregoing that traditional record model um, of signing up with the, one of those big record companies or labels. So I think they have a long way to go in terms of building that trust with their creators that are on the platform and allowing them to use it in order to build their own brands. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with music. There's the TikTokification, of course, and then there's actually support for NFTs in a way that I think a lot of other industries were seeing a lot of skepticism. You know, notably, um, I think an interesting use case for NFTs was Coachella recently started selling lifetime passes to the festival as NFTs. This is one of those things where I feel like it's neither here nor there that it's necessarily an NFT other than that I guess it's theoretically easy to resell. We've talked about this before. The gaming industry has been generally anti-NFTs, at least on the consumer side of things. There's a lot more acceptance on the music in the music industry of, of NFTs. And I think a lot of that comes from the use cases that are really not specifically with Coachella, but in general are trying to drive more value back to the artists, which I do think uh, is something that that fans are aware of uh, in, in the industry. And I think uh, that's why there's a little more acceptance of, of some of these newer Web3 technologies. Yeah, I think the Coachella one is an interesting use case for NFTs. I think the tokenized access bit of it does make sense to provide additional benefit beyond the ticket and allow the resale process to be transparent in that regard. Um, but again, this definitely could have been hosted on a you know private access microsite or something to that nature. So totally, I think that volatility around NFTs is going to continue. You recently posted in our Discord uh, Google search uh, history data for NFTs over the course <laughs> of the last month or so, and I think we're about to hit that uh, trough of disillusionment, if you will. The internet has collectively decided uh, to stop talking about NFTs. <laughs> One more piece of news before we leave you guys. Alaska Airlines actually started this week uh, selling pay-as-you-go flight passes in a move that hops on the popularity of the subscription model. Travelers who agree to pay a monthly fee will receive credits to fly a fixed number of round trips among 16 selected U.S. West Coast airports. Adam, as a California native, is this something that wets your beak a little bit? 100%. If I still lived in California, I would definitely do this. <laughs> there should be more things like this that make it a little more accessible to hop on a plane for a long weekend and go someplace. You know, they, the Alaska Airlines mostly just serves the West Coast and you can hop up and down the West Coast, uh, you know, relatively quickly. So we're not talking about long haul flights. It just makes it makes travel more accessible. And there have been other experiments with uh, subscription-based airfare, and they always tend to be on the super high end, right? They tend to be many thousands of dollars per year and uh, still full of a lot of restrictions and stuff. It's a tricky thing, I think, to balance and to get right. So I'm curious to to watch this experiment to see how Alaska maybe starts iterating it and changing it based on how people are actually using it. Like, do they need to charge more money or is does this price point actually work? Did they get it right out of the gate? And then, of course, you know, interested to see if other airlines pick up on this and start offering similar opportunities for this kind of relationship. It also, of course, creates loyalty with the airline, right? Because you're going to clearly be flying Alaska for those anything on those routes, but then you're going to obviously start building up your, your points and miles inside Alaska and probably more likely to take them on other routes as well. So it is, uh, I think, a little bit of a, a loyalty play there as well. I really love what Alaska is doing because I think it aligns very nicely with one of our outlook trends and life cycle loyalty. I think establishing that regular cadence of communication and service with that consumer really goes a long way in building that trust with them and having secured their services for a longer period of time than just a one flight basis. I think the term in Fight Club was a single serving friend. Alaska Airlines is hoping to be more than that to their consumers. 
Yeah, and I think it, you know, hopefully it's successful and opens up some new creative thinking about business models for airlines. Um, because I think with travel starting to swing back into, you know, full effect, I think that now is the time to rethink those relationships. That'll do it for this week's episode of Floor 9. As always, you can find us on our Medium blog at ipglab.com. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to leave us a five-star review. And until next time, bye-bye.